The Akkad and Koka Report, episode number 95. Welcome to the Akkad and Koka Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. The episode today is going to be a little bit on the technical side. Dr. Koka leads a conversation with our guest on the subject of genetic epidemiology and on some recent controversies regarding genetic predictors of cardiovascular risk. At times, they get into the weeds of statistical analysis, and from time to time, Dr. Koka describes some graphs and figures that he was showing on the video, video conference call during the taping of the episode. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we will post those graphs on the show notes for those of you who wish to look at them closely. Simply go to akadankoka.com slash episode 95. And now here's our conversation with Professor Cecile Janssens. Okay, well, welcome to this most latest episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. Uh, today we are uh, wonderfully lucky uh, uh, and grateful to have Dr. Janssens. Um, giving us uh, her time here on, on a weekend. Uh, Dr. Jensen is a research professor of, professor of translational epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health, Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, her research concerns translation of genomics research to applications in clinical and public health practice. And, uh, and she works a lot in, uh, in how, uh, in, 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 and she studies how the, uh, the predictive ability and utility of genetic testing. So this is I thought this was super important because we, at the moment, uh, at least for the, it seems there's been an uptick for the last uh, two years. Suddenly we're awash in all this prediction uh, um, uh, data. And uh, uh, there's certainly a push from uh, certain quarters to start using uh, uh, genomic, uh, uh, the, the data we can get from um, studying genomes, from population genomes, and, um, and, put, it, and put it into clinical practice. And Dr. Janssens is um, going to talk about, is going to put some speed bumps into this uh, whole process. Um, so, you know, I kind of first came, uh, it kind of first got on my radar um, with a paper by uh, Amit Kara and uh, the, the Dr. Katharason, uh, Sekar Katharason, uh, their group um, that came out in Nature a little bit ago, talking about polygenic risk scores. And they, and they went through, um, they, they use they polygenic risk scores. They use uh, uh, to come up with um, a uh, risk prediction of uh, for for various different diseases. There are five diseases. One of them was cardiovascular disease. Other was diabetes. And basically, they were able to. They say they were able to group people based on polygenic risk scores into you know high, medium, and low risk and uh, have suggested that uh, uh, we should use these scores and use, the, 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 uh, use, this, use what they're predicting to um, perhaps screen better uh, or, or perhaps even inform uh, therapy. Um, can you talk, talk to us a little bit, uh, Dr. Janssens, about uh, the background uh, of that, of that uh, paper and how they kind of went about doing this? Um, of course, I, can, I cannot not look in their minds on how how they came up with this paper. I can let me start first on how I got surprised by the paper. Okay, because great. <laughs> I've been working on this field um, this year already for 15 years. I started um, in 2004 with a um, 
with a very critical letter to the editor, uh, to a paper that uh, Moeen Khoury from Atlanta had written in the American Journal of Human Genetics. He was the first in 2003 to um, create a polygenic risk score. And his polygenic risk score had only five DNA variants. Um, at that time, we didn't call them SNPs, so it was just uh, genes, uh, very, very broadly. And um, so he um, concluded, based on a very optimistic scenario, that the future was very bright for polygenic risk uh, research. And my colleagues and I in the Netherlands, we wrote a letter to the editor um, illustrating to this group that, you know, that if you combine several uh, variants together into a risk model, um, that you should not look only at the tail of the distribution, the few people who get a really high risk, because that's with every risk model, there's always a few who have... Um, who are the most unlucky, but that you should look at the entire distribution and that you should um, use um, metrics like the area under the curve or the C statistic to look at the entire distribution. And so that, how, at that point, of course, Moeen Khoury was not really um, uh, happy with our, uh, with our letter, but it started off a very, very fruitful collaboration. So already early around 2004, 5, 6, we did a lot of simulation studies on how predictive can polygenic risk scores become if you start combining hundreds of variants into a model. And um, so we modeled, that's the advantage of simulation data, you never run out of power, you can simulate whatever you want. So we've, we, we, we created polygenic risk scores from a few variants to hundreds of variants. We varied the effect size of each of the variants. And basically what we modeled is that if the effect sizes get a little bit small, at least, you know, in our most pessimistic scenario on those days in 2006 was way more optimistic than we see today. The, the scores don't get really very predictive. So when the group of Sekatirzan um, um, came up with this paper um, um, last year and all the empirical studies in between, we were always wondering whether there would, become, would come a first study that would debunk our um, initial um, um, calculations that we did on simulation study. So every time that there comes a study that says, you know, it's very predictive, I am already, um, you know, alerted, like, okay, were we wrong? Were we wrong? Or is this paper wrong? So tell and, me, uh, yeah, but so, so tell me about how, how did you, well, first, uh, can you explain what a polygenic risk score is in, 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 in the best terms that well, a polygenic risk score is, uh, we calculate them for uh, diseases or traits where um, there's not one single gene that predisposes you getting the disease or being uh, getting the trait, but when there is multiple susceptibility variants. So it is many, many variants. Um, can be, in the beginning, it was tens of variants. Now it's hundreds of variants and maybe thousands of variants. And what um, Kira et al. Um, published was millions of variants. When you combine, um, they... they are <clears throat> thought to represent the genetic susceptibility to those common diseases. And as a way to quantify this genetic susceptibility, people combine them into a score. They combine them into a score in the same way as you combine your cardiovascular risk factors into the framing risk score. We do the very same, the same thing. The, the only difference is that all the SNPs that go into such a score, they come only in three, uh, three different genotypes you get zero, one, or two risk alleles from, from both of your parents. So it is not that you put age and blood pressure in the model, which have their own distribution, but all the variants are zero, one, two, and they have here in this model usually very tiny, tiny effect on the risk of disease. So, so, so you, have, you, have these large, you have these large numbers of uh, um, 
uh, patients now or, or people now. Sorry, that yeah. not everyone is a patient. No, no, not <laughs> that else. have been that have been um, uh, sequenced, uh, and basically you have folks that have disease and folks that don't have disease. Correct. Yeah. And now, and now the 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 common way these days of um, uh, analyzing their DNA is not by necessarily comparing the, the whole gene sequenced versus another gene sequence because it's too hard. They use something called SNPs. SNPs is yep. uh, single nucleotide uh, uh, polymorphisms, correct? Yep. Um, and basically, it's the most common uh, variation that you can find between populations, between individuals. When you compare two DNA sequences, basically, it's, it's where one single base pair of our yep. four original base pair um, yep model differs correct and so yeah. you get this you get this you're able to map on a on you know on basically the, your long your, on your chromosome from you know zero to 23 etc um uh, frequencies of uh, uh frequencies uh, of um, uh, basically you can map snips and how they differ uh, across that entire uh, uh, dna uh, uh, sequence correct well, you 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 map them. So if 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 you're thinking about the the Manhattan plots, how they do it in the genome wide yes. association study, you basically um, compare for each single SNP separately whether uh, a certain allele, that means a certain state of that uh, polymorphism, is more common among patients than among controls. And so when they when they when they when they risk allele when a, when an allele is uh, one of the alleles is more common among patients we call that a risk allele and that is the, the allele that increases the likelihood of getting the disease if you would prospectively um, uh, genotype that um, allele in in a new population. Can you can you oh, sorry yeah. uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the databases I mean these uh, the those population databases. Uh, what yeah. are they? Are they common? I mean, do do all researchers work on the same databases and analyze the same ones, or are there different ones? And how is the clinical data well, gathered? Um, so so um, so so these days we see that many uh, researchers use the the very large databases such as uh, the the UK Biobank, but um, which has five hundred thousand uh, um, UK uh, participants. Um, but there are many, many cohorts and, and other large data sets across, you know, across the globe that, um, in which the patients of the, the people in those studies have been genotyped. They either have been, um, I think it's, yes, it's mostly it's genome-wide association studies. So these, these people have been genotyped, for example, for 500,000 markers, 500,000 SNPs across the genome, or uh, a million or two million and so what uh, these researchers do in their population is to see whether, um, so when you have the UK Biobank, for example, you can, um, you have in the UK Biobank, you can have people with type 2 diabetes and without type 2 diabetes or with coronary heart disease or without the disease. And you can, for each of the SNPs that have been genotypes, you can see whether one allele is more common among patients than not. But if you do that for 500,000 or a million or two million uh, SNPs, then you will always find something, you know, you do it just too often. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of SNPs, often a lot of risk alleles will be found more, more among certain patients and among controls. And that is why you always in genome-wide association studies have additional populations where the ones that you identified in the first population, you test them in an independent population to see which ones you replicate. Right. But I, I was um, um, uh, also wondering about the, uh, the clinical endpoints. So all these... Um, 
uh, individual genomes have associated with them some uh, ICD-10 codes or ICD-9 codes or some, something yeah. like that mm -hmm. that, uh, that have been scraped off uh, clinical databases, presumably, or... Mm -hmm. Um, right, right. So that, so that's actually one. Of, that's one of the issues I was going to raise. Was that, was that, for instance, in in uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kara and uh, uh, Kathy Raisin's paper, um, yeah. in which they looked at these five different um, uh, uh, five different disease processes. One of them being a coronary disease, for instance. How do you define coronary disease? Because what you need to do is define a population of healthy, a uh, control population <laughs> that doesn't have whatever disease you're looking at, and and one that has it. And 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 the way they defined CAD was by um, by either you had to have a revascularization or mm -hmm. at some point you had an ICD-10 code that corresponded to coronary disease. And as yeah. Michelle and I, this stuff Michelle and I know very well, <laughs> you can get diagnosed with coronary disease for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a, if, if you, if you, if you go to a, a cardiologist who does a lot of calcium uh, scans as uh, Michelle does, you know, there's a 70% chance you'll walk out <laughs> diagnosed with coronary disease. Um, yeah. And certainly, if you have, um, if you're revascularized, if you have a stent placed, right, um, mm -hmm. certainly in the last 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. um, you know, having a stent, whether you have a stent placed or not, doesn't necessarily um, identify you as um, somebody that, uh, it, that may not be a clinical endpoint that matters so much because we do know that there's a lot of folks that um, get stented you know, for reasons that may not, may not be the greatest ones. Meaning the more you look, the more mm -hmm. you look for disease, the more you find. And once you find right. it, then yeah. you're kind of stuck with, uh, stuck in terms of doing something. And we yeah. know from autopsy studies from a long time ago that, you know, a large percentage of people die with their coronary disease, don't die of their coronary disease. So, yeah. you know, it, it gets to this very important point, meaning what is this, what, what is the, this validation part here? Um, yeah. That's what you were alluding to, right, Michelle? That's right, that's right. Yeah. And also, just more generally, maybe you can, yeah. you know, as an epidemiologist, you can tell us, um, uh, you know, coronary disease, we think of it, I mean, if, you, if we look at it historically, we had an episode, you know, way back last year uh, from a historian who looked at, you know, coronary disease as a, as a pandemic, you know, a historical pandemic. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, presumably in situations like that, you would, th you think that the, uh, Genetic factors, you know, I mean, it may be, it may increase somebody's susceptibility, but yeah. it's not necessarily yeah. causative in any direct way. Um, yeah. And so uh, what's, I mean, is that what we're trying to find is just the susceptibility of, of people to, to getting coronary well, disease? But that's, but that's why I thought, just if you, bear with me, Michelle, on this one. Okay. Uh, and I know this is not what Dr. Kara and Dr. Kathy uh, Rayson did, but, um, you know, it, just th this this uh, Manhattan plot that's here yeah. that that comes up a lot. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. it's named so because it kind of looks like the skylight of Manhattan. The key mm -hmm. here is is that th these each dot here going from chromosome, you know, uh, looking yeah. looking through all the chromosomes here, each dot represents um, the likelihood that the likelihood that the there's a significant dif difference in terms of yeah. allele or SNP frequency. Is that right, Dr. Yeah. Doctor? Yeah. 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 And that you every dot is a SNP. And yeah. so every time when you see like a like a tower in the yeah. skyline, yeah. Yeah. it is right. you know you have you have several SNPs that are very close to each other. And and the and that is that is of course what you um, um 
you know, I always explain it to students like a barbecuing in the backyard. If, if, you, if you barbecue in the backyard, then it smells like barbecue in your own garden, but also in the neighbor's garden. <laughs> and so that's why you see many, many dots, um, uh, you know, elevated, you know, with, with the, you see the effect a little bit also in the neighboring snips. And, and um, so that is what, that's what we're seeing here. But, does not but, mean that it does not mean that the highest is a causal SNP. We have no clue. Right. There is a region on the on the DNA in that region that there might be some something of interest. That is right. what genome-wide association studies um, reveal. Right. So, so the key here is the y-axis represents a p-value, right? Oh yes. And, yes right. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. So no, you're you're so far advanced. So these things are basic. <laughs> For you, but you know, the, the key is at, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> the key is is that the y-axis is is, is p-values and, and the p-values yeah. represent and so the 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 height you know these dots yeah. that are up here uh, yeah. you know the the purple or black or what have you yeah. those represent um, uh, SNPs that are very very different for the disease process being looked at correct yeah so yeah. if so, you have so, so yeah yeah so if on chromosome six here on the you know towards the end as you're getting into chromosome seven for some reason uh, these uh, these uh, SNPs that are located here, uh, there was a there was a there was a um, a, a highly significant difference yep. seen, at least statist highly statistically significant difference seen between seen those who are between yeah. those who are diseased and those who are dictated as or regarded as not diseased, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so these SNPs are then so basically these SNPs are correlated with. Yeah possibly correlated with these disease, but don't say anything about the no. causal nature of, of no. any of this stuff. No. And then when you go back to the early days of uh, genome-wide association study, the idea behind this, this was suddenly an enormous luxury, you know, before the GWAS, uh, researchers could, uh, were also looking for um, genes that were uh, implicated in, in diseases, but they could only look at, a, at, at one gene at a time and a few markers at a time. And then suddenly came this new technology that would allow for, um, for looking at 500,000 uh, markers across the whole genome. Right. And but still, the idea was, you know, to get hints of biological pathways. Right. So that right. Was the hint. And so when the goal is just to find hints and, and you're not interested in really the effect sizes on how much is this increase, you just want to see where on the genome should we look more, you know, our next next phase of research, where should we go more deeper? Then you can put the people with coronary heart disease. I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm not a cardiologist. So I may lose my credibility in your field immediately. <laughs> but then you can then you can combine all kind of sort of related phenotypes together. It doesn't matter so exactly whether um, all the doctors diagnosed everyone on the very same way. If when it's approximately right in a large data set, you will uh, you are likely to find such hints if they are uh, worth following up. Right. That was the that was the early days. That was the early day uh, behind it, um, and so. Um, but after that, uh, you know, many researchers did not go. You know, when when the Framingham did it in their cohort, everything everyone got genotyped. Um, I'm from the Netherlands, where we had the Rotterdam study. Everyone got genotyped, and we all did this genome-wide association studies. But after that, we started pooling it and pooling it in bigger studies and pooling it in even bigger studies. And now pooling it in studies that have five hundred thousand or a million participants easily um, rather than of course some people went went on to 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 do more um, uh, detailed research to find out to follow up the initial um, the initial signs but um, 
um, many people went to larger and larger DWASs. So what you get with larger and larger DWASs is, is you know, this simply how, how power of a study uh, works. With the same level of genome-wide significance, you find smaller and smaller effects. And that is what we are seeing. So the first, when you look at the first years, the first GWAS actually had only 150 people in it. It was in, in uh, age-related macular degeneration. And I, I don't know exactly, you can't remember exactly whether they had 50 patients and 90 controls or vice versa. But the effects of, um, uh, of the, the uh, polymorphisms that they were expected to find in macular degeneration were so large. You know, each, 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 each allele was giving three or four-fold risks of disease. And, you know, here for, for uh, coronary artery disease, we are happy when it's 1.1. <laughs> but if you, have, if you are expecting a large effect, you need a small study to, to, to find that effect. And of course, you need to replicate it. But, but by making all these genome-wide association studies larger and larger, we end up finding more smaller and smaller and smaller effects. Right. So, it, yeah. So, it, where each, so each little SNP high frequency, uh, sorry, uh, p-value, significant p-value, you know, the p is 10 to the sixth or whatever, but, but, yeah. but because it's, in, but you're only finding these tiny, tiny p-values because you, because you have so many, so many patients. So, so, so interestingly, uh, big data has made uh, genome-wide association studies statistically significant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what you get. But here's then, if, if we are uh, going to make this bridge to prediction uh, yeah. in a minute, for prediction, the effect size matters. We right. make prediction right. models based on the effect size. So um, um, we are not interested uh, so much in, in the statistical significance um, right. uh, because most of the variants that um, Kira um, included uh, in, their store, in their score are not statistically significant on their own. Right, right, right. They drop, so they drop the yeah. So today, so today, clinical risk prediction that me and Michelle use relies on age, gender, ethnicity, you know, body mass, smoking status, alcohol, physical yeah. exercise, all these things. Some environment comes into play, family history, of course. Um, yeah. But of course, there's this, the, the big kind of, uh, I don't know about elephant or mouse, depending on what you're saying, uh, in the room is the genetic, genetic inheritance of common diseases. Yeah. And that has to do with her heritability, correct? Um, the proportion of phenotypic variation in a population that can be explained by genetic variation, right? And that's, yes. that's where, that's the controversial thing that we're kind of trying to talk about today. A good example that's brought up a lot is the, is the BRCA genes, right? The BRCA1, yeah. BRCA2 genes. Now, the prevalence of these genes is much, 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 much less than 1%. And at a population... The mutation, the mutation in those genes, right. because we all have the genes. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The mutations, that, the high-risk mutations. The mutations are rare, right? yeah. Yeah, the prevalence is significantly less than 1%. At a population level, breast cancer, you know, can the breast cancer contributed by BRCA is relatively low. It's only about 5% of all breast causes. Yet pathogenic BRCA1, BRCA2 genes confers a very high risk, you know, estimated 65% or 45% absolute lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. And that, that's in contrast to the general population of women um, uh, where the, it's, you know, a 12% absolute lifetime yeah. risk in the general population. So, yeah. So is that an example, uh, Dr. Jansen, a BRCA1, BRCA2, just, just so I can, giving a real world kind of comparison example, is that the type, is, is that the, is it, because this is not, BRCA1, BRCA2, you would not talk about as a, it's not monogenic like cystic fibrosis or, or, uh, or a sickle cell or whatnot, right, where there's, this is, yeah, I do, not, I do not know exactly where the clinical geneticist puts puts the right. thresholds. Um, okay. So when I um, um, teach about uh, this topic, and I also I always start with the monogenic diseases where I discuss Huntington cystic fibrosis. But I must say that I always uh, consider the familial cancers in that 
uh, group as well. It is not a 0% risk of disease when you don't carry the mutation and 100% when you do carry the mutation, right. but it's, it is population-based risk or a very high risk. And the risk difference between carrying and not carrying the mutation is so high um, that you know it's, it is it's just worth identifying the people with the mutation or a, a proxy of that, namely family history, uh, in the populations and to to give them um, a more intensive uh, surveillance program or maybe even surgery if they test positive for the mutation. Right, right, right. But, but so. But I think they fall in they fall in the in the, uh, in, the in the in the work field of the clinical geneticist. So I think right. that is um, yeah. And the polygenic risk they they also shy away from uh, so far. Right. So as time has gone on and we've had these larger and larger studies, mm -hmm. you know, you have more and more of these loci that are found. It seems to, are you saying, at least the claims made by folks is that, you know, there's 80 loci that explain about, uh, that's, that explain about 20% of coronary artery disease is heritable. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's, is that more, is that kind of fictional or is that, is that real? Meaning uh, have we actually as we've expanded the net in terms of how many people we're able to study, um, mm -hmm. are we are we truly finding that more and more of, say, coronary disease is truly heritable? I find that a very difficult question to ask because I, I would I would ask a cardiovascular geneticist about that um, <clears throat> because uh, for two reasons. Um, um, first of all, is heritability is not a stable characteristic of a trait. It's not a stable feature. The heritability of a disease really depends on in which population um, you are investigating it. So um, if you see heritability estimates for diseases in the literature, they, they vary all over the board. Um, and so you have diseases that are highly heritable, uh, like Alzheimer's disease or cystic, uh, um, uh, schizophrenia, um, uh, also eye color is in that, uh, in that game. Then you have diseases that have a heritability around 40-50% that are a little bit in the middle. And then you have diseases on the lower end like type 2 diabetes and non-familiar breast cancer. Um, it is very difficult. Uh, I find it very difficult to answer. Like um, I do not know what the, what the heritability of a cardiovascular disease is. Uh, you have all kinds of definitions of cardiovascular disease. You introduced yeah. it already. Um, and to say that we have already explained an X percent of that genetic variability, I, um, we, we, we are getting somewhere. There are definitely um, many variants that have been replicated in, in many studies. But how far we are, I cannot say that. So, you know, so one of the, one of the, one of the other reasons it seems like... Um... So initially, when GWAS came out, it was it kind of landed with a little bit of a thud in terms of <clears throat> clinical predictability, right? Because there was yeah. such a you know you were saying relative risk of one point one or something like that. Yeah. But but uh, you know one of the one of the interesting shifting the goalposts in terms of how to evaluate GWAS studies has been that uh, people have started to say that you know the best way to evaluate this is not using area under the curve. Area under the curve is yeah. is probably best understood as uh, 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 as a diagnostic, you know, it's a, it, it's best used for diagnostic, uh, for a diagnostic test to define, quantify mm -hmm. probability that the predicted risk of an individual with disease is mm -hmm. higher than the predicted risk of an individual without disease. So, mm -hmm. you know, in our, in our world, you know, we understand that, um, you know, this is where positive predictive value, negative predictive yeah. value, sensitivity, yeah. specificity have their, have their interplay. And, uh, and so, and we use that all the time in terms of trying to figure out if a test is positive, you mm -hmm. know, is the patient mm -hmm. disease positive? Yeah. And it is, and we use it all the time in diagnostic tests. Here, mm -hmm. here, so do you think that is that um, 
an appropriate tool to um, uh, kind of test, uh, yeah. you know, the polygenic CRISPR scores? Well, um, I'm a very big fan of the AOC. <laughs> But it's not the only tool. It's also not a tool that ultimately matters. And so the polygenic risks of the, the, the AUC is really nothing more um, that if you make if you if you would make a risk distribution, um, just like a like a histogram, um, and you make that risk distribution separately for patients and for non-patients, for patients and controls, then you see two risk distributions that that have some degree of overlap. The area under the curve is nothing more than how separated are those two curves. Um, I have a paper that is that's almost coming out where we where we show step by step how you get from these risk distributions um, to um, the area under the curve by just four simple transformations. So it is exactly the same thing. So it applies to diagnostic testing, but also uh, um, predictive testing. Because you have the two risk distributions and how much are they separated, but you know, being able to separate those risk distributions, um, you can do that by any risk tool, by any uh, risk model. That is not the goal from polygenic risk research. But the goal is is ultimately clinical utility in practice. Oh yeah, here you see one. Oh, you see now a, 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 a risk distribution in in the paper from Kira, Figure Two A. Right. There you see the overall risk distribution. If they had projected that risk distribution separately for uh, the patients in their study and the people without the disease, then you would see two overlapping risk distributions. And the, 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 the separation the, the, uh, between those risk distributions, that is exactly the area under the curve. Right. But that is not the goal. You know, the goal is not to get the, as high as possible um, um, area under the curve. It's also not the goal to, uh, to get it uh, a, a touch higher than a clinical uh, risk score. Uh, the goal of, of prediction is clinical utility, and um, uh, so that for that you need different metrics than the area under the curve. But at the same time, when the area under the curve of the AUC is very very small, it's unlikely that you can expect clinical utility. And I always, I'm, I'm very uh, pragmatic in that uh, respect. I always look for clinical risk models for the same disease, um, and see what kind of AUC uh, do they do they have, and use that as a kind of a benchmark on how um, um, the, um, the area under the curve of a polygenic risk score uh, needs to be at least to be um, competitive with clinical risk models. So what about the idea, that, and this is another, uh, this is from a, uh, something written by uh, Torkmani and uh, the Topol, Topol group, uh, talking about why AUC may be uh, not the best way of uh, evaluating these studies because um, they don't talk about absolute risks. That's true. Um, so, um, so if it's the case that if it's the case that PRS is giving us the polygenic risk scores are giving us um, subpopulations that have a higher absolute risk of disease mm -hmm. um, than than a low risk or a control group, mm -hmm. uh, then what's the problem? Why why shouldn't we be uh, using that? You know this. Yeah, so the, so the area under the curve, I think what, what is a bit um, uh, difficult uh, to, uh, because people say, indeed, often say, you know, it doesn't generate, uh, it doesn't look at, at, at uh, the absolute uh, risk, but, but the area under the curve is, is a measure for the metric, you know, uh, for, uh, for this is a kind of an, an, a quantification of how, how, how good is the risk model. So you don't communicate AUC with a patient. 
you don't communicate it with a doctor. It is more like a tool for uh, policymakers or or, or uh, people who write the protocols on which test to use in which situation. They need to know uh, the the area under the curve of a of a, of a risk model to, um, to to decide whether it is predictive enough to use in practice. And once you use it in practice, you don't need the AUC at all. It's like all it's like all the metrics. So when you use a thermometer to to measure the temperature. You don't want that. There must be quality measures that say whether it's a good thermometer or not. But we never use that, that those indicators. Right. But for the people who compare thermometers, you know, they need to know which one works better than another. Right, right. So tell me, you know, this is again for. Uh, can you can you? So what? Yeah. What's the major problem? Would you say uh, in terms of why these are not ready for clinical use? So I um, I see several problems. If you if you yes. if you uh, if you um, follow my 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 comments use that I usually make in the field, I'm mostly focused on the methodology. Right. So um, I what I care most is uh, some 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 people think that I'm totally against polygenic risk scores, but I feel that is the same as being against logistic regression or being <laughs> against Bayes' theorem, which to me makes no sense. So I have, I'm not against um, polygenic risk scores, but I'm really in very favor of um, of studying it in the right way. And so we we must not forget that prediction research. When we start thinking about how how well a model predicts disease, prediction is a is an applied science. So we don't do um, risk re prediction research uh, to find out just the predictability of a risk model. No, we 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 have certain risk factors that we consider based from the epi literature that we have, the epidemiology literature, and then we would like to see whether all these risk factors that we have are when we combine them into a score, whether it's a clinical score or a polygenic risk score, whether they can predict a disease. But you have to understand that when you uh, investigate the predictive ability, um, uh, the same score may have total different predictive ability in whichever population you apply it, because it's it's sensitive, of it, it really depends on who are the people in your population. And therefore, it's very important that we apply and evaluate those risk scores in populations, what we call for the intended use, in whom are you going to apply that model later. And so, because it's, because really the predictive ability, I, in my early days, when I, I think in, back in 2008, we um, evaluated a polygenic risk score for type 2 diabetes in a population that was 70 years on average, 70 at baseline. So if you think about the prevention of type 2 diabetes, is a 70-year-old population your target population that you think, I am, if I'm thinking about a polygenic risk score, I'm going to apply that in a population that is at least 70 years old. No, you don't. You want to, to prevent that in younger ages. But the fact that we found that it didn't predict in older ages does say nothing about whether it will predict in younger ages. So you really should be, that, that should be your starting point. What is, which medical uh, decision or which public health program needs a better prediction? And for whom is that program? And that should be your study population in which you want to investigate the predictive ability of a tool. And then you can start, okay, uh, then, you, then you know your target population, you know what you want to predict, you know which uh, predictors are available in that population, and then you start thinking, uh, uh, investigating how well a polygenic risk score predicts. I see. So, so you're, raising, you're raising the issue uh, that, well, one of the issues that, you know, the UK Biobank, which is where, uh, so for instance, this paper was based on the UK Biobank study. It's uh, primarily a European ancestry um, uh, and uh, of course, they're volunteers, correct? So obviously, they're volunteers, volunteers. but 
yeah, but that also that age range is anywhere from, I thought, 35 till 70. Right, right. And so every model that you construct in the UK Biobank um, has a very strong predictor, namely age, for every disease that is age-related. Hmm. And so the, when you look in terms of the AOC, um, and you, 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 I can always e immediately see whether a prediction model is evaluated by an epidemiologist or a statistician, because of, well, by someone who, with, with experience in prediction, because the epidemiologists easily say that the, the risk model was adjusted for age. But we know that if you adjust for age, that age is in your model. And if you then see a high C statistic, then the C statistic is likely high because of age. And that was also one of the issues in the paper of Kira et al. They had in the preprint on bioarchive, they had uh, they had a substantially lower area under the curve than in the ultimate paper in, in uh, nature, nature and Nature Genetics. And the difference was age. So I think the area under the curve was uh, differed somewhere from 0.65 uh, in the preprint to 0.80 in the uh, in the final in the final paper, and that difference was was contributed by age. So I think when you want to use the UK Biobank for prediction, you first of all you need to be extremely careful. There is a paper, the PIs of the UK Biobank wrote a paper themselves that you should not use the UK Biobank for risk research, not for incidence prevalence estimates, because it's selected, it's biased. You should not do it. And what you see a lot, and that I, I, I don't understand that, is then people apply the UK, apply, uh, use the UK Biobank for risk research, and then in the limitations in the discussion you read, they write that it's not suitable for this type of research. And I think you can really save your time and do it in another population because we will, it will not, we cannot generalize the predictive ability um, of a polygenic risk score. You know, the, the ones that we have found in 70 year olds does. 18 SNP did not predict diabetes in 70-year-olds, does not tell anything whether it will predict in a clinically relevant population of younger adults. And that is all the time. So if you want to use the UK Biobank, I think the first thing you, to, you can do is zoom in the age range. Only consider maybe, now and then I need to talk with a cardiologist because I do not know where you want to, in which age group you want to prevent cardiovascular disease, but not maybe in the very young and maybe earlier than 70. I see. So, so how would, so would you, I mean, I, I mean, so if I'm interested in, uh, you know, for purely selfish reasons, a 40 year old man, uh, 40 year old man's risk of, uh, having a heart attack in the future is at least the, the genetic components of it. Um, mm -hmm. you would say the UK bioband, you said you would say only, you know, filter out, do a study only among, you know, 40 to 45 year olds. Yeah, exactly. for example, for example, and then you and then you will find so then so then a lot of risk factors, of course, there's way less variation. And then you will find out that it's way more difficult in such a limited population. So of a limited age range and and and, and a healthier group, way more difficult to mm. to uh, to predict um, cardiovascular. Ah, uh, I see. You know, right. Dr. Jensen, I really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your, your cautious uh, stance here. It seems to me that the problem is inherent to, to the field. Yeah. That yeah. if you're if you're going to need to read the tea leaves of uh, statistical analysis, <coughs> you know, then then yeah. inherently it's going to be you're going to find things that are you know where the effect size is too small to be yeah. clinically meaningful on an individual basis when you're confronting with one patient, you know, a doctor. Yeah. Seeing a patient, so so who are the the uh, the genetic epidemiologists, you know, working for essentially? I mean, you mentioned policy and 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 that sort of thing. I mean, it's 
how, how do you see that playing out you know in the future or or well it, it will have clinical relevance for some diseases in some situations so the the um if you if you think about age-related macular degeneration they know several variants plus plus uh, a ton of others uh, that together because of the strong effects that a few of the of the polymorphisms have on disease risk you can construct a polygenic risk score that's quite predictive the same is for other autoimmune diseases for type 1 diabetes for maybe a little bit even for alzheimer's disease um, but you need a few variants that have a a um, stronger impact on disease risk so right, you, but, but even then wouldn't i mean clinically even then don't you you're going to you're going to be screening anyways people for macular degeneration i mean oh, yeah, irrespective yeah. of i mean because the score is never going to be 100 percent predictive so yeah. so at some point yeah. either you decide to screen and look at the eye and decide if the patient has macular degeneration or not or yes. or you don't and and well, you know. so it, it, clinical utility depends all what can you do with the, with, 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 the, with the information. And so if there's nothing you can do with the information because you don't have a, a preventive treatment, then the information just stays there and, and, and being unused. But, but I can see for, for um, if the, 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 the variants have a stronger effect on disease risk, and it is for diseases where even um, more uh, intensive surveillance um, like, like for, for breast cancer, that, that um, for uh, certain groups of the populations at uh, the much higher risk, um, you see, screen them a little bit more uh, frequently to see whether they develop early symptoms. Yeah. Michelle, right. I mean, Michelle, we use, we use the BRCA uh, genes for, uh, to decide on, you know, if you have a family history, personal, you know, first degree relative. Uh, uh, FH, and there are several, uh, and, right. and I think also that's, that's how, how you should, uh, how you should uh, also look at the, at the future of polygenic risk. There are, there are exceptions. But so what, what, what worries me um, um, on some days more than on others is the enormous enthusiasm for the the delta area under the curve of 0.01, you know, that it's really a touch higher um, in, in, even in a study. And then I think, oh, if you go out, if you go into the wild with this polygenic risk score and, and, and the, the and clinical practices is very messy, this little tiny uh, improvement that you have in your, in your prediction um, is easily nothing in practice. Well, what, but so this is, so they show, they show this, um, uh, here. They show this uh, graph on the left. I, I, this is your slide, by the way, from oh, yeah. from Twitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and the, the, this this chart that they're showing here with percentile of polygenic score yeah. in terms of the match. Uh, you know, so what what's what's wrong? Again, we I've, we've already me and Michelle have already outlined in the beginning the fact that you know all CAD is not the same. AFib yeah. here, for instance, was like self-reported AFib. Like you know, yeah. there's plenty of patients that live very long lives with AFib. There are plenty of patients that have AFib once, never have it again, but yeah. you know, anyway, so there's all sorts of issues related to that. But okay, but let's accept the fact that you could predict clinically important CAD and clinically important AFib. Um, yeah. What's wrong with this chart here? Here they're showing that, you know, there's a, there are folks with, at the higher end of the polygenic risk score that are yeah. at significantly higher risk. They're saying threefold risk. And, and they use threefold risk because, um, they said that the FH patients, right? FH patients are at threefold risk than the general population of, yeah. of having a clinically important endpoint. So what's wrong with this, with this graph here, or in your mind? 
Um, so what, what's what's with this one? So the first thing what we miss if we think about um, the prediction is what we call the prediction interval, the uncertainty around uh, the the prediction. What I when I see a graph like this, I see most people in the middle, between two and say four or five percent probability of of um, of coronary artery disease. So you did the the y-axis is is zoomed in very much. There is a high. There's a very small group. That has a higher risk, this 12, uh, 12% risk. But how certain are we that that is a 12% risk? We don't see the uncertainty around these estimates. And that is, that's for me, uh, it's, it's, it's one thing. If, if you then, uh, then, then comes the, the clinical utility, of course, what are you going to do with these people? You should not forget the people, even in the highest group, have a 90% probability of not getting that disease. 90. That to me, if you, if you want to use this information to motivate people, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. Right, right, yeah. Correct, it's, and and then how often do we uh, would we miss this high risk, or, or yeah. how often could we also get it uh, just through the family history? Uh, yeah, and I mean, also, how much does it yes. add if we if we identify the very very high risk by polygenic risk score? Do do we yeah. know how that compares to just a family history? I don't know that they did it. They did not do a very um, honest comparison in this paper between the clinical model and the, and the polygenic risk model. It was a bit of a pity. They did not have a clinical model that, 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 um, that calculated the risk for each individual based on clinical mm -hmm. risk and the, uh, the demographics and family history, and then compare that with the model based on polygenic risk. So that is what, right. we, what, we, don't, what we don't know either. But 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 so what I miss in the in the graph like this, uh, and that is that is, uh, I'm, and I'm going to check that out with my statistical colleagues why we don't discuss the prediction interval uh, much more in in prediction. Prediction interval is if you if you're going to use a prediction model on new people, it's not only the uncertainty around the prediction is not only the confidence interval, but because there comes more uncertainty into a prediction. Mm. And if you want to use it for individual decision making, it's a different, uh, different level of precision um, than when you want to make a threshold somewhere and you don't care so much whether people are in the top 1% or the top 10% because you are going to do more intensive surveillance anyway with the top 20%. Right, you know right. what I mean? So, so then it doesn't, uh, then all the, doesn't matter whether you are in the highest bullet or, 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 or one lower, you know, that may be messy. But all these people are above a threshold, so it really depends for prediction as well how accurate, how 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 well it should be, whether you are going to use it for groups, based on you know that that you are uh, you have your framing risk score and you have certain you know, thresholds uh, for treatment and the only thing that you're interested in is, is someone above the threshold or below, and you don't care so much how much below or how much uh, above. That is yeah. a different level of predictive ability than when you want to say, no, really, your risk is 12%, not 11 Right. So what if they went back? So, I mean, again, these, the way these studies are done is that there's obviously a, 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 they look backward to see who is at high risk first, right? Yeah. Based on, and they come up with the polygenic risk scores and they say, aha, okay, these folks that, um, these folks are highest risk at this polygenic risk score. Then they, once they have their polygenic risk scores, then they have a, uh, testing cohort, right? And yeah. Or validation, validation. And, the, and, the, and, the, and they apply it in that, yeah. Right, yeah. and and, that, and that's how they generated this graph yeah. where they said, all right, we're now prospectively kind of looking at it and using the score, we we find that we're able to discriminate. What, yeah. what if they've also done stuff where, and you're of course 
one of the points that you raised that I thought was on, that's on the slide that you raised yeah. nicely was that the reason they said these folks are high risk is because the three, the whatever, the eight people, the upper yeah. eight dots is the average risk. Yeah. Yeah. 8%, it is eight here, is 8% is the average risk of the upper eight dots. It's not that, it's not that all of the eight dots are at. <laughs> no, no, no. There's only one dot that was above it. So they say in the table that 8% is above yeah. uh, the threshold. But, right. but they simply, if it, in yellow, you could see that they, they ran a, a lot of logistic regression models uh, to get to that eight percent, to get to the it's also not that they uh, the, the proportion was at higher than threefold risk. Now it is at threefold risk. It was eight percent was at threefold risk, right. but it's only when you really look at you know how many yeah. were at threefold risk it was only one percent. Right, and right. and that is in this paper and and uh, so um, the reason why I spoke uh, up a little bit after this paper is a little bit out of frustration because we've done this type of research already for fifteen years. And this is just not the way how we look at it. And it's just also not the way that brings the field forward. And, and um, I find that a pity. This is just not the way how, how to, 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 to analyze it. So, uh, so my interest in speaking up about, about polygenic risk research um, is, is just the focus on the methodology. So we don't get polygenic risk scores any closer to practice if we keep on studying it in the wrong way. And it does not mean that we have all have to study it how I say it needs to be studied. There are there is decades of experience in clinical risk modeling and also in polygenic risk modeling, um, where people have outlined and, and and done a lot of research, especially in the clinical modeling, on on how we evaluate those tests. And one of the one of the things is don't look at the top one percent or ten percent or five percent. You can always find a top X percent that has a Y false increase in risk. But you have to look at which which threshold is clinically relevant. It's, you cannot just pick and choose one that gives, you mm. know, an, an so oscillator. So right, right, right. So, 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 so LDLs, for instance, the reason <laughs> the reason that makes sense to choose the top, you know, people with an LDL over two fifty, which is mm -hmm. very bad, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, is because L it is very, very rare for somebody with an LDL over two fifty not to go on to, to develop uh, yeah. coronary disease, and that's significant. Whereas, yeah. whereas if you just had some random distribution of, say, people with six fingers or yeah. six pinkies, um, yeah. and you just took the top percentage of those, you know, that's not necessarily clinically relevant. And you're saying no. that these yeah. guys are doing something, these folks, uh, I don't mean guys, these folks are doing something that's very similar to that, just kind of arbitrarily yeah. cut taking the top off. Taking a cut, yeah. So it's not, it's also uh, not only them, unfortunately, but many, many other uh, groups, uh, groups as well. It's not that they take an LDL level and say, if you are above that, you, uh, you should, yeah. you could be a doctor and, and do something. No, it is the top one percent of people with an LDL. Right. Should go and, to the doctor, and yeah. then the top one percent varies between the top one percent of which population, which right, population right. is so. so that doesn't matter. So Michelle sense. and I, Michelle, Michelle and I love that you throw it back to the clinicians and say, you know, well, and how is this clinically relevant? Because, um, you know, what do what does one do with a high polygenic risk score? We can say, okay, you'll exercise more, you should eat yeah. less hot dogs uh, and barbecue bar barbecue less. But 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 does that mean number one, as you pointed out, um, there's a 92% chance nothing will happen <laughs> with this yeah. high risk. And number yeah. two, does that mean that I tell the low polygenic risk score people to eat, to not exercise and not, you know, so. 
So that doesn't work. But, but we, we, we don't, so I think most people now agree that we don't look at polygenic risk scores on their own. You know, we combine them with clinical risk factors, um, um, et cetera. But, but, but you always have to look at what are we going to do with it? You know, yeah. we should come to a point that we think, you know, we have now, we played already with, for, with polygenic risk scores for 15 years. We've done, this is already the third time that they, they are really very, very popular. And and um, so I think we should soon get over that area under the curve is is what we you know uh, get gets us in the in the better uh, in the better journals. We really need to move forward to clinical utility and then also start, you know, in a conversation with the doctors. You know, what's if you as a cardiologist, which of your decisions uh, are you now making based on? You know, too much uncertainty. Which of your decisions do you want to be supported by a better predictive tool? And start there, and start from 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 utility, but not. I think we've done enough uh, polygenic risk scores now, just in the UK biobank. You can run them for every disease and every subpopulation, um, and it doesn't tell us anything. And that's well, I mean, that's what, what I find so unfortunate. I mean, our, our problem is is that there's you know 40 year old people who run marathons that dropped out of a heart attack. You know, the, yeah, the issue is not, I think that's not because of a polygenic risk score. Right, right. But the, yeah, the issue is you know we're trying to make it not so stochastic, meaning Meaning yeah. there's a group of people, you know, that think this is stochastic, that this yeah. is a random bad event that, you know, that you would never be able to predict. But, yeah. and, but then there's a, there's a group of people that obviously would like to figure out, is there some causal thing that we could do different? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Is, 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 that, is that a fool's mission, do you think? Um, well, little. <laughs> depends on how many. So I think it, it really depends. It's a false mission uh, when when you really have no clue for bigger risk factors. Because prediction, if when you make a prediction model, for example, like the Framingham Heart uh, uh, model, what kind of risk factors are in there? That are the common risk factors yeah. because you only end up with statistically significant risk factors in your model. All the rare risk factors, you know, don't right. end up there. Right. And so risk models are by definition for the for the big picture. And, and it is, it is the, uh, you know, the individual variation that goes beyond the common risk factors. It's very, very hard to model, if not impossible. Because with, with this model, so that's then the model gets, you know, you have to get all these uh, strange interactions that never ever become statistically significant. So it never will be selected in a risk model. That's one problem. You cannot model it. But then on the other hand, to predict it, you need to know all the information that in your individual case will determine whether you drop that or drop that, no, let's, let's say drop down on, 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 um, during a run when you are 40. So you do not know which data you need to collect. So it is a problem with the modeling and with the data. And so I think for the, when it comes to clinical relevance, I think there's still a lot of uh, room for improving predictions. I'm, I'm optimistic in that, but it will be uh, for those diseases where we have some or preferably multiple risk factors that have have some impact on the disease risk. Not all these tiny, tiny variants. Yeah. So, 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 so you would say so something like something like breast cancer. You're saying so something like where BRCA affects clinical decisions in a real way because there's a causal mechanism. Or I don't know. Yeah, yeah but, but also, but also diabetes. You know, where where yeah. obesity is a very strong risk factor, and and oh. I'm sure that that will yeah so so it does not need to be uh, all or nothing or you know close to nothing and close to all mm. but but uh, like the like the framing and risk score where you can do some stratification maybe not perfect i think that there is room for improvement 
uh, you know, I expect that with, with more measurements, I'm very curious what comes out of the microbiome because mm. I'm very, you know, with new microbiome? measurements. Hmm? What is the microbiome? Sorry. The microbiome, microbiome is all the bacteria in your guts and oh, how okay. they, and how they play a role in maybe becoming obese, maybe oh, I see. All, the, all the metabolic uh, diseases. I think new ways of, of getting closer to, to risk factors also with the brain imaging, um, we may find better predictors for Alzheimer's disease when we look at with novel risk factors. But I think, you know, looking at these million SNPs in your DNA, mostly mm. having such a tiny, tiny, tiny effect. And that's also what, what, uh, what the, coming back to the study of Kira at all, if you looked in the supplementary files, that most of their risk models that had millions of variants performed worse than, uh, than the ones that has this significant variants only. It is just, you know, um, you need to, in order to improve prediction, you need to have risk factors that have some impact on the disease risk. Mm, right, right. So this, this whole, so this is, this is a problem with big data, right? The problem with big data is that you just get, you know, if you have a, if you have a heart attack on a Tuesday, uh, your mortality is lower. Uh, yeah. you know, but, but who cares? Because that, that's not necessarily. It is, you know, with big data. So when you have a large data set and 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 a lot of computer power, you can you can calculate everything. Yeah. But but it's so tempting to forget the thinking. Uh, you know what what are you calculating? And that is what what I think we will do this for a while. Um, these polygenic risk scores until we all get tired of it. And then we start thinking, okay, doctor, what do you need? <laughs> but I think I think what's going to happen, and what's already happened, right? Twenty uh, three and Me and Ancestry. I mean, they've sold you know number of there's. Uh, so much money that's pouring in from direct to consumer uh, uh, yeah. uh, buying, and you know uh, because the people are selling. It's essentially today's version of the snake oil salesman. They're selling, uh, you know, and and they can't be falsified because you know they're saying, well, you have a X percent risk of getting yeah. Alzheimer's, yeah. and if you do, if you develop it, it's like, well, we told you so. If you don't develop it, it's like, well, it's a it's a chance. <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't predict zero and hundred percent, you're safe. Yeah, Michelle, we need to get into this, you know. We, we That's definitely right. need to start because, selling this. Yeah, or put me on the advisory board because I'm very... Dr. Jansen. Right, I know, but... Uh, we'll cut you uh, in, Dr. Jansen's. We'll give you 10% to say certified by Dr. Jansen's epidemiologist <laughs> at Emory. I take that. I take that. But I think, you know, I, I, I go back to what you, you were saying uh, earlier, Dr. Jansen, is, you know, prediction is, is about the group. It, yeah. it's, it's never about the individual. And therefore, it's never, it cannot be uh, a clinical tool, so long as the clinical tool is concerned with the individual. Um, yeah, yeah. If it's, right, just for the reason that Denise just said, you know, I mean, if you're going to use prediction in the clinical arena, I mean, you can never be wrong, right? <laughs> you can always say, you know, oh, I, I told you you had a 50% chance of this, you must be in the other 50% if you didn't get it, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So, um, you know, but, but it needs to be, is, it needs to, oh, sorry, go ahead. It needs to be informed by something that's real is what Dr. Jansen is saying. So something with some pathogenic, you know, LDL, BRCA, you know, there's things. It needs, it yeah. needs to make sense. Obesity, I was, diabetes, yeah. Several years, several years ago, I was in a, on a, uh, somewhere on a, um, a symposium about big data analytics. And um, there was someone from Microsoft and he was uh, just be talking about you know how the, how they approach um, all these this big data anal uh, analytics and, and artificial intelligence and everything, and he was saying that they don't trust models if they don't understand why the model predicts. 
you know? So it needs to make, at the end of the day, it also needs to make sense, especially when you use it for a major decision, you know, a major surgical decision. Correct. Or, uh, you can't say, well, my, uh, you know, we have here a tool, you do not know exactly why it predicts, but you know, it gives you really high, you know, really almost 80% uh, probability of getting this disease. We do not understand the tool, but I would recommend prophylactic surgery. That doesn't work. Correct. But then do, do you actually need, I mean, I, I'll tell you this, I, I never, <laughs> never ever in my clinical work pull out my Framingham risk calculator. Okay. Okay. I never <laughs> calculate. I, I, well, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I can tell you what I do. And then yeah. I, I wonder if, if we never had the Framingham study, I, I don't think, you know, we would be a lot worse off in terms of how we treat coronary disease. I think, mm -hmm. I think the course of coronary disease would probably be exactly the same that, uh, you know, there are things we understand, things we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And whether we compute somebody, you know, we say, oh, make a decision on the basis of the Framingham risk score that says that a person has a 12.6% risk and therefore yeah. I'm going to start a statin. I, I find that completely ridiculous. But, but, you, but so, you, are, you are internally, Michelle, I mean, you, you know, yeah, 60, I'm making, this, you're making a decision based on your experience where a 65-year-old who smokes, who's yeah. obese, who's a diabetic, you know, that person... Yeah, so you're, yeah. I mean, Framingham is basically but, but, but trying to objectify. That's, that's, that's not glean, right, but I don't quantify. need the objectification. I, I don't need the quantification. That, no. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't need the statistical quantification. I don't need, <laughs> I just need to get a sense. And so I, and I make a judgment and, 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 and perhaps actually in, in two people who have the same characteristics, I may treat them each one differently because again, each one is an individual and they may have personal yeah. circumstances that influence my decision one way or another. Yeah. Right. Or the decisions. So the, yeah. the quantification, actually, I couldn't care less. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna at the end of the day, I'm gonna make a decision, and I will never know if I'm right or wrong. Right? Yeah. I will never know if I'm right or wrong because, you know, if I if I make a decision yeah. to do X and the patient does well, is it because I did X or is it because he he would do well no matter what? Yeah. Right. And vice versa. But also, we should we should also keep in mind that you know the the cardiologists are not the only one interested in 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 polygenic risk scores. Also, the the the, the, the for diabetes and obesity and and cancer. Yeah. And but but again, when you say when you say a the, lot the, of polygenic risk scores, and then they have an increased risk for heart disease, and the the cardiologist says you should lose weight, but then the, for <laughs> obesity risk they have a decreased risk. So why should they lose weight? So it is at the end it it, it will be it will be very very difficult. Um, I did my, uh, I'm a, you know, to confess at the end, I'm a health psychologist by training. Oh. Uh, and I did my PhD on risk perception, not on risk prediction. Uh -huh. So I moved uh -huh. my career from risk perception to prediction. Um, risk perception, so how people deal with risks, that's a whole other ballgame, you know. And <laughs> therefore, exactly right. you know, having, whether, whether, you know, when you showed me that graph that, that, that uh, for some people the risk uh, of coronary artery disease is not uh, 3%, but it's 6% or 7% for people that is still a very, very high risk of not getting it. And, right, and so right. If, if and, and, and that's very behavior, you're not going to do it. And it's very relevant clinically, risk perception, Absolutely. right? The risk perception of the patient is extremely important clinically. And it, it can override everything else that you try to else. predict uh, objectively. Even very so, frustrating, but it can, yeah. You know, and I hear what you're saying that, you know, the clinician, and I would say the, the academic clinicians, the community of academic clinicians are demanding, you know, these uh, objective risk prediction models, but but I think that's that's uh, to me that's a little uh, uh, it's a misplaced emphasis. They're, the, trying, you know, they're, we, we they're trying to play. they're trying to limit variation, Michelle. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's it's just that's right. They're they're trying to limit variation. They're they're yeah. trying to make everything 
yeah. mechanical and predictable yeah. Yeah. for the but sake also, of, of and, policy. And at the same time, and, and, uh, the same time put it in hands and put it, put it, put the responsibility to someone else because if you don't understand how the polygenic risk is calculated, what science is behind it, what are, we, what are you relying on? I don't... You know. Yeah, you're relying on the mystery of clinical judgments. Yeah. <laughs> Which no, is, no, no, uh, no, yeah, I, right, but, but what, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. But I, I, no, Dr. Jansen's points here. Dr. Jansen's is clearly, uh, we, we need we need more voice, <laughs> more voices like this, <laughs> so it's wonderful. So thank you so much for, you know, I, I, now we've taken up more than an hour of your time on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, it was just really fantastic. Okay, thank Take you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Yeah. bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.